0: We're in Romans chapter 7. Those of you newer to the Christian faith, Romans is near the back of the Bible, remember? It's after all those big books of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, you'll find one big book called Romans chapter 7. Paul has been talking about the law, and here he kind of brings home what the law can and does do in our lives. Starting in verse 13, Paul asks a powerful question Did that which is good, that is the law, then bring death to me? By no means, may it never be. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, May God bless the reading of His Word. Would you please be seated? You know, winning is a great feeling, isn't it? In sports, at work, you get wins in family life. Winning takes us to places we really enjoy. But sometimes, especially with God... Winning takes forms we don't normally envision. I felt this acutely in college. I was in in engineering school at that outstanding university, North Carolina State University. I was a growing Christian. I wanted to follow Christ and live for him. I was even actively engaged in ministry, reaching out to people with the gospel, reading my Bible, praying... But as I did all this, I found a peculiar thing going on in my life. The more I sought God, the more I struggled. Now, some of that was my brokenness, my sin at work. But I can say this, seeking God didn't feel like wins on a regular basis. It didn't feel like victory. So what did I do? Well, just think, I'm an engineer type, and I'm trying to follow Jesus, so I decided I would study up the Bible and come up with a formula. We love formulas as engineers. A formula that would discipline my life and which resonated with God's word. And I started to work on the formula. And the funny thing about that was, while I think I was actually doing some good biblical stuff, I became more frustrated with my walk in Christ. It was, to say the least, disappointing. Then, during my junior year at NC State, I decided, through the influence of my pastor and good brothers and sisters in Christ, to start reading Romans, one verse at a time, every day. And I did it for several years. And then one day, I came to this chapter in Romans 7 in kind of everything the clouds parted everything started to make sense about what it means to really live the Christian life and in fact during that struggle in college i was really asking what i think most christians secretly think why is walking with jesus so hard why is it such a struggle? And why does there seem to be a disconnect between all that I know and all that I actually do for Christ? And that one thing that kind of is in the background of all of these questions is, when will I ever conquer sin in my life? Because I know it's there. And it's hounding me. Well, today in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul gives us really a personal glimpse of the struggle that goes on in following Jesus Christ. For this entire chapter, Paul has been really dealing with a problem that Christians and even unbelievers encounter in their attempts to get better, internally and externally. And the problem was that of the law, the rules, that if I just follow these ten rules, then I will be better. But Paul goes to great pains to show in chapter 7 that's not the case. And his goal is clear. His goal is to convince us that in the end, the law of God, even the formula that God gives us for life and our spiritual growth, is not enough to change us. Two weeks ago, David Uran dealt with this when he did the, the middle part of Romans 7. And in verse 7, Paul asks a question that comes out of those who were trying to use the law. They were using the law thinking, if I just do this, everything will work out. But they were finding it wasn't working out. They were actually sinning more. And so Paul asks the question this, like this. Is the law sin? In other words, is there something inherently uh, in the law that's, that is sinful in and of itself and causes sin? Paul's answer is what he tells us even in our text today by no means, no way. No way, Jose is what by no means means. And he says that the law of God sets the standard for us, it shines a light, if you will, on what we're supposed to be and the way the world's supposed to work. And he makes it really clear this standard of God is holy, it's righteous, it's good. There's nothing wrong with God's law. It comes from God. The problem, he says, is within us. The problem's inside of us. Paul moves to the next burning question in our text in verse 13. When he asks the question, okay then, is the law responsible for death? Because we know from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ascend... That they were promised that if they sinned, if they broke God's law, they would surely die. Is the law responsible for death itself? Paul's answer once again in our text in verse 13 is very simple. He says, by no means, no way, Jose. The problem of death does not come from the law itself. The problem once again is within us. It's in our hearts. In other words, we can't handle the law. So there are really three things about the law Paul is really summarizing for us. And this is true with technique. This is true of formulas. Any way you look at trying to follow God using the law, three things can be said out of it. The law is not responsible for how sinful we are. The law, in fact, reveals our sin. and reveals us and reveals what we're really made of as sinners. The law cannot change us. Let me put it this way. The law does not have power to change you. The power you really need is the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me illustrate what the law does. It's like this. Have you ever been riding in a car at night, especially on a long trip? You're driving a long way. And as the night goes on, you're driving, it's dark, you know, lights come by, things like that, with other people going the other way. But then you drive up to an intersection where there are lights all around, that is, uh, street lights. And it illumines your windshield. And suddenly you notice your windshield is really nasty with dirt, with bugs splat everywhere. And it's stuff you did not notice while you were driving in the dark. Well, guys, that's exactly the way the law works. We normally drive in the dark in our sin, but when we come right up into the light of Christ through the law of God, that law illumines our hearts. It illumines who we really are inside. And it's kind of, ow, I didn't know I was that messy I didn't know I had bugs splat on my soul. For the struggling Christian, Paul knows that we struggle in our lives with the law, what to do with God's rules, but he also knows that we try to use the law to change ourselves. And you can't. You can't get rid of the dirt and grime on the windshield with the law. It's going to require something else. Paul goes on then to step it up. And he knows when somebody says, you know, the law can't change it. Somebody will say, now why is that true? I've tried so many things. Why is that true? You've got to explain this to me. And so he begins a cascading series of fours, or whys explaining why, in our text, starting in verse 14. Four. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold unto sin. I do not understand my own actions. Four, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He goes on, four, 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 four. He's explaining why it is that we struggle so much with the law. And here's the deal. Paul is telling us why the law can't in the end help us, or shall I say it, save us. And there are three reasons why. Here are the three reasons. Oil and water, competing desires, and futility in the self. Oil and water, competing desires, and futility in the self. First, if you want an explanation of why we struggle so much with obeying God, following Christ, even obeying the law... The first thing you have to realize is we're dealing with oil and water when we deal with the law. In verse 14, Paul talks about the origins of the law and, it, and that it, it comes from God. I mean, think about that. When you think of the Ten Commandments, they come from God. He decrees them in the power of the Spirit, even through men like Moses. But they come from God. Their origins are from Him. Now, here, let me explain that a little more. Do you realize what that means? The law reflects who God is. When God says, do not commit adultery, do you know what he's saying? He's not just saying that about us and requiring it of us. He's reflecting something about himself. That he doesn't wander in his love. His eyes aren't wandering away from us because something else is more attractive. Nah, his eyes are fixed on you and me. And they don't wonder, even when we do. That's what that law reveals. God loves you even when your love is cold for Him. He does not commit adultery. So, whenever you are pursuing God, and you're struggling with the law, don't miss the point. The point is not just what are you supposed to do with God's rules. The point is what does this reveal about Jesus? That he's faithful, he doesn't commit adultery, that he's a faithful lover, a just lover, a giving lover. The problem, though, with all that the law comes from and its origins is that our origins spiritually are mixed up with this like oil and water. Paul goes on to talk about we are of the flesh, meaning we come born with original sin, if you want to use the technical term. We have a bent towards doing our own thing, towards loving, but loving with a hook, a self-centered hook of what do I get out of this when I do this? Versus the giving love that we are called to give, just as God gives to us. Paul is telling us that we are called to this unique life But we can't go to the unique life of following Christ because our bent naturally is away from God. Remember, sin is natural feeling. It feels normal. Walking by faith rather than sight, that feels weird. That feels strange. That feels odd. That's what he's reminding us of in this text. Second reason second reason the techniques of the law don't work for us is we have competing desires. Verses 15 and 17 tell us about this utter honesty of what it's like to follow Christ. This this is incredible stuff. I do not understand my actions, Paul says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Don't you love the honesty of Paul? I mean, how many religious leaders in history say, Man, I have this vision, this idea, even born of God's law and God's intent, of the way I'm supposed to live, but I just don't do it. I just can't do it. We do what we do not want. We do the very thing we hate, he goes on to say. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered, why do I keep doing what I know in my head is wrong? I know how I'm supposed to love someone like my spouse or my friend at school. But, and I keep trying, but I keep getting off track. Why do I keep doing this? Well, the key is in verse 17 where it talks about the real problem being sin that dwells within us. Three times in this text, Paul says there is sin that dwells within us. Indwelling sin exists. You see, when we become Christians, we are forgiven of our sins once and for all in our justification because of Christ's death on the cross where he said, it is finished. Forgive it. You're a child of God. You're headed to heaven. But in our sanctification living in this life, we have the presence of sin in our lives. Christ got rid of the penalty, but we still wrestle with the presence of sin and indwelling sin. As a result of this, our new man, that born-again uh, piece of us, that born-again self, is in a regular battle With ourselves, the flesh, over sin and what God wants and what we want. Here's the way Luther describes it. If you want to understand why it is you struggle, remember this truth from Luther. He said, we are simultaneously justified saints and broken sinners. At the very same time, we are both and. Not either or. What is normal for us as sinners is to sin. That seems right and feels good. Faith seems strange. Faith seems odd. And that competing set of desires goes on within us. So, there are two reasons here why the law can't help us. The law mixes in our heart like oil and water, and it runs into competing desires within us. But the third reason that Paul gives comes in 18 through 20. Look at verse 18 What that says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is more than a mere repeat of verses 15 through 17, Paul is telling us that we experience a life of futility, of following Christ, because as verse 18b says, we're not able to follow Christ on our own, in our own power, in our own effort. This is an offense to us as American Christians. Americans of all peoples in the whole world are can-do people. Get her done is our motto for our spirituality. Paul is saying, however, when you run into the problem of not getting her done, that is because inherently we are not able to follow Christ. We can't pull it off by discipline, we can't pull it off by trying harder. We can't come up with clever formulas of spirituality. Ah, I finally got it. We need something more beyond us. Now Let's stop here and talk about a very important point. There is an issue in this text that I have to talk about. There are some in Christian circles, Bible-believing Christian circles, who would be very frustrated with what I'm saying right now. This text, as many think, teaches a different view than what I'm saying. There are two views about Romans 7 that we need to deal with, and the first view is the one I'm articulating, that Paul, the apostle, the Christian, is talking about his struggle following Christ as a believer. However, another popular view goes like this. There is a higher plane, a higher life that you can achieve. This is called the perfectionist view. The perfectionist view says that Paul is not talking about himself as a Christian, he is speaking of himself prior to becoming a Christian. And the perfectionist view says that Christians shouldn't struggle like this, they get better and better every day and start living in victory over sin some perfectionists will come close to saying things like hey I have repented of all known sin I'm not I am living in victory over sin in this life this is a real view that is scattered in the church it is triumphalistic it is not reality and the problem with this view comes with things in the text Paul speaks in the present tense. Have you noticed? I am. I do. I, in the present tense, struggle with this life, is what he's saying. Did you notice he also said in our text, he desires to do what is right. And by desiring to do what is right, he desires to do what God's law says. And he goes on to say, I delight in God's law. How many non-Christians do you know delight in God's law? See, This text is about real Christianity, not pretentious Christianity. R.C. Sproul tells a great story about one time he meets with this young man, and this young man tells him to his face uh, something that is along the lines of this perfectionism thing that I'm talking about. And the young man apparently said that he had received a second blessing, and he was enjoying a life of victory over sin. And R.C. pointed him to Romans 7 and talked about Paul's seeming ongoing struggle with sin as a Christian, even indwelling sin. And he asked this young man who said, well, Paul, speaking of of, uh, his prior life as a a non-Christian, he points out how that really doesn't work very well as an interpretation. And then R.C. went on to ask this intriguing question, do you mean to say... You think your experience is superior to the apostles and that you don't struggle with the Christian life like he did. You know what the young man said? Yep, that's what I'm saying. This young man believed that he could actually exceed the spiritual experience of Paul in a higher life. R.C. rightly points out that to believe perfectionism that you can somehow pull off a law in your own power creates two dilemmas for you. Either you overestimate your own ability to follow Christ or you underestimate the demands of the law of God. Beware perfectionism because it's in every one of us in some shape, form, or fashion. Spiritually speaking, we are prone to think if I just set my mind to doing this thing... I will get it right. Guys, that is the spirit of perfectionism. Paul wants us to know, hey, I've got great news for you. You ready? You can't do the law. Give it up. On your own power, even your best spiritual intentions, you can't. You know why I tell you this? Because if you really follow Christ, what will actually happen in your life is you'll see more sin, not less. Yes, even as you grow in repentance. Let me illustrate. Look at this next slide with me. Your life in sanctification will be an ongoing struggle with sin. But look at Paul's life himself. Have you ever thought about what did Paul think of himself spiritually and how he understood his own sin and his own need? Well, before Paul became a Christian in Philippians 3, you know what he called himself? Blameless under the law. Blameless under the law, meaning he never broke the law. Now, clearly, he's saying this tongue-in-cheek because he was a murderer. He was killing Christians. He was doing a host of other things in his uh, judgmentalism and older brotherness but in acts chapter 9 paul became a believer jesus entered his life broke through and changed him in a radical way and he began to follow christ that was about 35 ad give or take a few years 20 years later in 55 ad in 1st corinthians 15 paul calls himself the least of the apostles meaning And if you read the text, he's basically saying, I don't deserve to be an apostle. Considering who I am and what I've done with my life, I don't deserve to be an apostle. Then in 60 AD, in Ephesians 3, Paul calls himself the least of the saints. In other words, I am so not together. I don't even deserve to be a part of this group, this church. Then right before his death in 64 AD In 1 Timothy Paul calls himself the chief of sinners And he goes on to admit his utter need for Christ Both in his past and his present He knew he was an angry man And I bet he struggled with it most of his life And God was taming that anger in him Why am I telling you this? Because look at the progression. As Paul gets older in Christ, he sees more of his brokenness, not less. He sees more of his darkness, not less. That's the way the Christian life actually exists. At this point, many of you might feel like, wow, this is depressing. (laughs) I get it. I feel it with you. Because I'd like to think I have success in life, my best life now. Yes, that was a dig. But Christianity says something very different. Look at verse 24 and 25. Paul gets the struggle inside with this. In verse 24, he says, What we all are thinking sometimes as we try to follow Jesus and there is no success. Wretched man that I am. Miserable. Oh, this feels awful. Wait a minute. This is the guy who went to the third heaven, who was inspired to write scripture, who was used by the power of the Holy Spirit to heal people, to do amazing things, to raise a guy from the dead? And he's saying, wretched man that I am? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Wretched man that I am? And that's because this is where the text in our lives turn. After he says, wretched man that I am, he comes to the question that you and I have to learn to ask, not just the first time we walk with Christ, But every day, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? You know that word for deliver here, rescue? It's drag out from. Imagine somebody trapped in a car after a horrible wreck. They can't get out. The the, car is on fire. They're maimed. They can't do anything for themselves. Somebody brings the jaws of life and yanks them out. That's what the Greek word means. Dragged away from danger. Who will do this? I mean, after reading this, you're thinking, I can not do it. And Paul's answer is profound. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Jesus. Don't you see, guys? Too many times we think Jesus just saves us when we first become Christians. But somewhere along the way, we forget to need him for everything else as we live our lives. And Paul's bringing us back to the larger question of how we need Christ and how we need him even how we live today. Paul wants to lead us to understanding Christ as our final hope, that he is the only deliverer that when you feel inside that I can't do this, that is the perfect place to be. It's where you need Jesus again. The Christian life is, I need you today, Jesus. Oops, I need you tomorrow. Ooh, I need you today after. I need you right now. I need you. I need you to save me, to deliver me, to rescue me from this body of death, this sin that dwells within. Only you can do it, O oh Lord. This is the life that Paul is really trying to lead us to. A life of needing Jesus on a regular basis. Of thinking grace is amazing every day. That I once was lost but now I'm found applies to right now. That I once was blind but now I see right now. Jesus is the only one who is truly victorious for you. And this is the great news of the gospel. It is Christ who got it right. It is Christ who obeyed the law perfectly. All that you and I strive to do, even with sincerity of heart, and can't pull off, Jesus got it right. All that you and I fail to do, and those things that we should do, we don't do, and those things we shouldn't do, that we still do, Jesus died on the cross as the final sacrifice so that we might be forgiven. You and I need to tap into that forgiveness again and again and again. One of the critiques of my preaching, which might be appropriate, is that I keep bringing up the cross and Jesus every, every text. And you're like, why do you do that? It's not even there in some cases. And I'm, here's my response. Jesus is in every text, and you and I need him just as much today as we did yesterday. We need Him more. And the purpose of wrestling with our sin in this life is that we might know Him better, deeper. Because you can't stop knowing an infinite God. Three brief applications. We'll call it a day. First is this. We need to understand that the Christian life is not an upward spiral where you keep going upward towards better, better life, even perfection, you know what it actually is? A downward spiral towards humility before the Lord. That's actually what it is. That's what was going on with Paul. God ironically leads us down towards more and more humility, and in that process we encounter Christ in bigger and deeper ways. Let me illustrate this with a what you see here. Some of you have seen this before. This is the Sonship cross chart. And this illustrates what living a life for Christ is like. Here's how you read it. You read the top line as an, our understanding of God's holiness. And you read the bottom line as our understanding of our sin, of our brokenness. That gets revealed over time. When we first become Christians... We see the holiness of God and how we can't live up to his standards and our sin and how far it is from God. And we need a savior to save us. And Christ is the one who redeems us, who we trust in by faith, even if it's for the first time. But as we get older in Christ, yes, we do have victory and we grow in holiness. And even many of us become more and more godly. But as you become more and more godly, more and more holy, something occurs. You see more of God's character. You understand how much farther short you fall to God's law. You feel your sin more acutely, as Paul articulates in this text. The result is you need Christ. Christ gets bigger in your life and bigger and bigger. And you know what happens when Christ gets bigger in your life and you start following a bigger Christ and yield to him more and more in life? You get bigger. You get more holy. You get more glorious. That's what happens in the Christian faith. We need him more, not less, so know the Lord. Second, as we get to know Christ better, as we grow, God as, as God calls us to grow, we have to exchange our desires. Do you want to grow more in Christ and deal with your sin? Look to Christ as your Savior yet again, but also... Explore his beauty, his wonder. Because if you're headed towards heaven, that's exactly what you'll be focused on for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Look to him in the scriptures and study God and get to know him in his glory and beauty. Because as you exchange your desires for God in his beauty for your desires for the things of this world, you are changed. Third and finally, and this one may surprise you guys. When you struggle, like Paul talks about in here, you're thinking, man, that's exactly me. I'm doing what I don't want to do. What I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Celebrate the struggle. Verse 25 says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord for the fact that Jesus saves me from my sin today. And yes, for the fact that I'm struggling with the sin. You see, non-Christians aren't going to struggle with sin. They're going to rationalize it. But when you're wrestling with it and you're really struggling, that's glorious. That's beautiful. That's the normal Christian life. Let me illustrate with a final conclusion. Early in my marriage, I uh, read Ephesians 5, and it said, Love your wife as Christ loved the church. So I started to pray early in my marriage. Lord, help me to love my wife Elizabeth as Christ loves a church. And you know what happened as I prayed that? Uh, my marriage got harder. Didn't get easier. And this was a little bit of an odd twist because I had hoped that God would zap me with the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden I'd be a holy dean. I go to seminary, I write a paper on Ephesians 5. That's right, I wrote a 25-page exegesis paper just doing the nuances in biblical theology of Ephesians 5 so I could better understand it. Did that help me? Well, no, it got harder. Even harder in my marriage. Over time, what God did was He used the struggle to expose the real issues in my life that I'd been praying about. I had prayed, God, help me to love my wife as Christ love the church. That means I've got to change the way I handle conflict. It meant I'd have to change the way I communicate. It meant I'd have to change the way I look out for her needs even above my own needs. Because before, my love was awful a lot with a hook. Hey, I'll love you if you love me back. I hope Elizabeth today would report that I'm a better lover better than 15, 20 years ago, and I hope even better than five years ago, honey. I would tell you (coughs) that I have a long way to go. I'm not a lover by nature. I'm a selfish man from a selfish lot. The perfectionist would tell me at this point, try harder. You should just obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way. the gospel says yeah Dean you're not enough and you'll never be enough on your own you need the power of a gigantic savior to love you and to show you and tutor you on what real love looks like not your concept of love it takes Jesus to transform our hearts to make us people of integrity in how we live you see, the struggle through my marriage is what kept me needing Jesus. Your struggle is what's going to keep you needing Christ and knowing him more than you ever thought you'd know. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we admit that uh, knowing you and needing you is very hard stuff. And... Um, It is not natural to us to look to you from little things that we struggle with in life to even big things that haunt us. But that's what you're calling us to today, Lord, is a life of change because we're encountering you. I pray today, Lord, for all of us here, for those who come to this church today, even haunted by a sin that is just driving them crazy and they feel utterly defeated, help them to know that their victory is not in themselves. But their victory is in you, Jesus. Help us all to embrace you and embrace embrace your amazing grace and how you save us from so many dangers, toils, and snares, and you're not done yet. Lead us in this grace, O Lord, that we might know you and be in preparation for that day when we see you face to face. Hear these prayers in Jesus' name.